Amen. Thank you, Jonathan. So good morning again. Uh, even as he was praying there and he quoted uh, our founding documents, the inalienable right of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I thought, you know, so much of what is at stake in our cultural moment right now is how we understand that phrase, the pursuit of happiness. Because, of course, as people of faith, we would say that written into that phrase, the pursuit of happiness, is the pursuit of God himself. Because there is no happiness. C.S. Lewis said there's no such thing as happiness apart from God. And so we're doing a series uh, throughout this summer on the Lord's Prayer, which many of us are familiar with. And it is more than just a prayer. It's a rubric for how to live the whole of the Christian life. Uh, And so if you have a Bible and you want to turn, we're going to be in in Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. We're going to kind of skip around this morning, actually, in our reading. So be prepared for that. But if you don't want to try to jump around, it's all printed for you in your worship folder. It'll also be on the screen behind me. Or if you're at home, we welcome you as well. It should be on your screen also. We're thinking of the phrase where Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come. So let's read together, okay? Now, Luke 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John's disciples taught, as John taught his disciples. And he, Jesus, said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Now that phrase is loaded with significance throughout the scriptures. And so here's what I've done. I've taken three different places from the Bible that describe this to try to bring them together so that we can think well this morning about what it means to pray that prayer. So the first is from Daniel chapter 2. And Daniel 2 is one of those passages where if you're reading it, you, would be, you probably would think, I have no idea what's going on here. What in the world is this? It's a prophetic passage about what God is meaning to do in the world uh, that all took place through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So listen to Daniel the prophet writing hundreds of years before the coming of the Savior Jesus. He, the, the king has a dream, and Daniel interprets that dream, and here's what he says. In, in the days of those kings of the earth, days dominated by earthly kingdoms, Daniel says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw, O king, a stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold. For a great God has made known to the king what what shall be after this. The dream is certain, its interpretation sure. Then 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which describes for us not only what Jesus has accomplished in his life, but even now what he's doing as he reigns in heaven. It says that there's an end coming when, when the kingdom is finally here, but it says... Not until a few things happen. It says, then comes the end, Paul writes, when he, the Lord Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And then in the very ending of our scriptures, the last pages where everything comes to its final conclusion, here's what we read in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet And there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Say with me, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Your kingdom come. Dallas Willard has for me written the book on the kingdom. It's there for you in the resources that I've listed. It's called The Divine Conspiracy. It's definitely something that you should read. It's quite long, though. It will take a while. 
But in the book, he makes a startling claim. He says, and really the whole book is built upon this idea. He says that the gospels, in parentheses, the gospels so prevalent in Christianity today, most of, most of what passes for the gospel is actually an invitation to omit God from the course of our daily existence. Now, when I first read that, I knew he was on to something. And I can't help but wonder if that's why Christianity is in the shape it's in today. He called these gospels the gospels of sin management because he said the basic message of Christianity had been reduced to how to have your sins forgiven so that you can go to heaven when you die. And of course, that's wonderful news. And it is core to what our gospel is. The problem, as Willard saw in any way, was, you know, okay, if you reduce it all to that, how do you have your sins forgiven so that you can go to heaven when you die? The problem is that has no, well, it has few implications for how you live on a day-to-day basis. But in the Bible, the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. And the thing about that word kingdom is, as soon as that word kingdom shows up, it signals to you that whatever God is saying in the gospel, it has something to do with every square inch of everything. And thus, every part of your life. And the response, as you've already picked up on as we've been kind of going through the service, the response to the idea of kingdom in the Bible is always the same. Here's what Jesus said, the kingdom is at hand, repent. The kingdom is here, repent. And repentance is rethinking your thinking about something in particular. And so here's the question uh, that I would have you ponder as we go throughout our time together this morning. What thinking do you need to rethink? What particular thinking might you need to rethink as we talk about the kingdom together? Because here's what we're going to see, just taking this phrase and then jumping to some of these places. We want to see what the kingdom, what, what God's kingdom is. What is it? What is God's kingdom? Secondly, how does the kingdom come? Because he's told us to pray that his kingdom comes. So how does it come? And thirdly, who does the kingdom come through? Because all three of those questions are important to consider. So the kingdom and the kingdom come and then ultimately the king, right? So let's do this together first. Let's ask the question, what is God's kingdom? What is God's kingdom? Now we typically think of the word kingdom as a place, but it is better at least the way the Bible uses the word to think of it uh, as describing activity. The illustration Dallas Willard uses in his book is electricity. So think of electricity, the electricity of God is now in the world. I, very few of us, I think, if any of us, uh, remember what life was like before electricity, but think of all of the things that were made possible by the coming of electricity. The kingdom of God is at hand. The electricity of God, the spiritual power of God is now coursing through the world. Hook your life up to that. It makes things possible that were before impossible. That's what Jesus is saying. When he showed up, he announced the kingdom of God at hand. He was claiming, Jesus was in the gospels, to be God. And saying that he had come into the world to get some stuff done. To overthrow the old evil regime and to set up God's government on the earth. And so kingdom describes an eruption, not E-R-U-P, I-R-R-U-P-T-I-O-N. An eruption, a sudden forceful entry, an invasion. C.S. Lewis described the world as enemy-occupied territory. And he said Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise, and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. And there are two phrases when this word kingdom comes up that are used interchangeably in the Bible. The first is, it's called the kingdom of God. So in Isaiah the prophet, the gospel, if you read, the gospel in Isaiah is simply God. 
What's the good news? God. Behold your God. God is at hand. God is coming into the world. God is going to make it right. God is here. Nothing will ever be the same. And so it's the kingdom of God, God's presence. And Jesus is saying, I am the one who's come from heaven. I am God in flesh here to finally do something about this mess that you have made in the world. But it's also called the kingdom of heaven. The gospel is the kingdom of heaven. The gospel is heaven now invading earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I've given you three biblical texts beyond Luke 11 to illustrate how comprehensive this idea is in all of the scriptures. The first is from the book of Daniel. Daniel was a prophet during Israel's exile. It was a very, very dark time for God's people. They had been defeated and enslaved. They had been abandoned by God because of their sins. They were being oppressed by a cruel, harsh, foreign ruler, an emperor. And Daniel was a young Jewish boy who was picked out uh, to be a servant of the king of Babylon. And one night, the king had a dream, and it was known that Daniel could interpret dreams. In his dream, the king saw a statue, and the statue, its head was made of gold, its torso was made of silver, its legs were made of bronze, and its feet were made of clay. But then as the telling of the dream goes on, it says, then he saw a stone, and then comes the really important phrase, cut out by no human hands. And in the dream, the stone rolled down the hill, and it struck the statue and broke it to pieces, and all of the different pieces became like the chaff that blew away with the wind, but then the stone became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth in the place of where the statue once stood. And Daniel was asked to interpret this dream. It was very vexing to the king, and this is where we pick up the story in the part that we read, and he said this, Daniel said the, the statue represents a series of kingdoms. Most scholars believe it's the Babylonians who were then conquered by the Persians and then the Greeks and then the Romans. So think of all of those world powers that you learned about in history, hopefully in school. And, and so there's this series of kingdoms that are going to come upon the earth. But then Daniel said in the comings and goings of those world empires, something amazing was going to happen. God was going to set up his kingdom, and ultimately the kingdom that he would set up would shatter all the kingdoms of the world to pieces, and it would replace them, and it would be what would last forever. It would start small, it would be just a rock, but then, as, as you see in the dream, it would grow and grow into a mighty mountain until it filled the whole earth. And God would be all in all, and his kingdom would be the one that filled the earth, and it would be a kingdom that would never be destroyed. Isn't that great news? It was for them. I promise you it was for them. The reason it's not so great for us is we're not, we don't realize. See, the trick, we don't realize we're an exiled people too. We're far too at home in the world these days. But for an exiled people, that's great news. Jesus arrived in Palestine at the height of the Roman power. At the height of that very, you know, the last of those four kingdoms, saying the kingdom of God is here in direct allusion to the passage there in Daniel and other Old Testament scriptures, and in his life, death, and resurrection, here's what N.T. Wright says, the whole cosmos turned the corner from death to life, and now he has gone back into heaven. And here's the question, what is he doing? I mean, why is it taking so long, right? Anybody, I mean, 
what's going on in the world, and the First Corinthians passage says that there's something very concrete that Jesus is up to in his resurrected, ascended, exalted state. He is dismantling every authority and power, both spiritual and earthly and political. He is putting every enemy under his feet, every demonic stronghold, every cultural institution, every political ideology that is opposed to his kingdom, whatever is opposed to his vision of shalom for the world, it is all being overthrown right now. And when he is done, when every enemy is subdued, he will hand the kingdom over to his father and then the end of all things will come. It's a powerful passage, but that's what Paul claims. The third text is from Revelation 11 and it is a celebration of God's final triumph, his complete an utter overthrow of evil at the end of human history, and an angel blows a trumpet to signal what God has done and to call our attention to it, and then all of heaven begins to chant, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That is your gospel. If you believe that is your gospel, because, of course, the Babylonians were destroyed, who destroyed Israel. The Babylonians who conquered Israel were themselves conquered by the Persians. And then the Persians were defeated by Alexander the Great, whose empire was ended by Rome. And Rome ruled for a thousand years upon the earth, but eventually it fell into decline too. Do you know what that means? One day, and this is the perspective that we have to keep, uh, even, even on this weekend, one day, the United States of America and all of its presidents and all of its military actions will be a footnote in history. But God's kingdom is unshakable, and it will never end, and it will be celebrated forever and ever and ever, and the day will come when it will grow to be a mountain that fills the whole earth. And Jesus, here in Luke 11, in light of all that's being said in the Bible about those things, tells us that one of the things that we should be praying as we go through our life is, your kingdom come. Oh God, your kingdom come. Make it, Jesus, make it so that your kingdom comes. But you have to know what the kingdom is, and so there's a little snapshot. Secondly, as you think about praying that prayer then, not only do you need to know what the kingdom of God is, you need to know how the kingdom comes. How, so how does it come? And here, again, we have to borrow from Matthew because, of course, Matthew has his own version of the Lord's Prayer, and it's a little different. Luke, Luke's is a little condensed. Matthew's has some more detail. And in Matthew's version, it says this. Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now think of that phrase, on earth as it is in heaven. It's challenging in many ways because we often live with a sense that heaven is there, right? Some there, out there, and earth is here. Heaven is God's space where God lives in the invisible world, where what God wants always happens. Earth is our space. Earth is full of the practicalities of daily life. Now, that way of thinking is no different than the first century or at any time in human history. But the kingdom, what this word kingdom means is that there and here are in fact not separated from one another, but they have been made a single interlocking reality that there is no longer there and here. That both heaven and earth are part of our here. So the end of Revelation does not picture humans being snatched up out of the earth to go to heaven. And so the gospel is not just, it is, but it's not only about how to be forgiven so you can go to heaven when you die. In Revelation, 
where it describes the end of all things, the holy city Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven to the earth. <clears throat> coming down out of heaven from, from heaven to the earth and his space and our space finally married together into a single unit. Christianity has been fighting Gnosticism since the very beginning. And Gnosticism sees the final goal. Gnosticism, Gnosticism actually sees the final goal as the separation of the physical from the spiritual. The problem, the physical is the problem. And the, so enlightenment, spiritual growth, all of those things come from being able to separate out the spiritual component of your life from the physical. But this prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray here is an anti-Gnostic prayer. It is a call for a merger of heaven and earth. And so in the Gospels, Jesus arrived, announces the arrival of heaven. He says, eternal life. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, or if you're here, uh, you know, and you're not sure what you believe, but listen to this part, because here's, here's really where we failed to, to give you the clear message here in some cases. Eternal life is not just a duration of life, it's a quality of life. The word eternal, it's heavenly life. That's what the Bible means by that. It's heavenly life. And here's the good news of Jesus. You don't have to wait until you die. You can start eternal life right now. You can, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can enter into heaven ahead of time, right now through repentance and faith. Jesus is making himself available as the doorway to life that is really life. And it all starts with having your relationship with God put right. So Jesus Christ came to live a life of perfect obedience, to die as your substitute, bearing the penalty of your sins upon the cross so that you could be forgiven and made right with God. But when your relationship with God gets right and gets healed, then every other part of life starts to get healed. Even creation itself gets healed. Paul writes that the creation is broken and that the earth is groaning and hoping for you and me to finally get our act together. The trees are screaming out to God do something with those people because God meant from the very beginning for us as images of God to be the ones that led creation into the glory and blessing of God. The creation is groaning and hoping and waiting for mankind reconciled to God to exercise dominion as he's meant to and to put down all of the corruption and the evil in the world. And Jesus is saying that that work has already begun. And so here's what one writer put. He says, the gospel is not an evacuation plan to heaven designed for religious people. It is a transformation plan for everyone on earth. Our mission is not to be snatched away from this earth and make it to eternity, but instead to bring heaven here. It's not about abandoning the world, but about building bridges and celebrating God's healing of the world. We're told to pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. <clears throat> We're told to pray, your kingdom come, because though the world the whole world already, in one sense, belongs to him. It does not yet fully belong to him. His will is being done. Nothing happens apart from his will. But in another sense, and this is very important, in another sense, there is much about the world as it is now that is contrary to his will. Still, there's a day coming in the future when all his will will be done, when only his will will be done. But there is more still to come. And there are advances to be made. That rock that smashed the kingdoms of this world, right? That smashed it into pieces is not yet a mountain that fills the whole earth. There are still enemies that must be put under Jesus' feet. 
So here's what we learn. The world is not what it once was because Jesus has indeed brought the kingdom near, but it is not yet what it will one day be. And the, this prayer that Jesus prays, this prayer is an ache for the full story to be completed and for God to finally be all in all. Sandra McCracken, who some of you might know, she's a contemporary Christian artist. She wrote an article that appeared in Christianity Today in August of 2017. It was really helpful. She used jet lag as an illustration of what I'm trying to describe as our experience here. If you've ever experienced jet lag, uh, it's not, not a lot of fun. It can be incredibly disorienting. And uh, she, she described how we can, how we're both spiritually, we're pulled between two different time zones, between the promise of the kingdom and the reality of the present, between, you know, what God says is going to be true of the world when he is finally king of the whole world, and yet how we experience the world still to be. And she, she says this, she describes how disorienting that experience of the already and the not yet and how you live in between all of that can be. She says, just because something is true doesn't mean it feels true. What I believe often feels out of sync with my experience, with my circumstances. Reality unleashes pervasive brokenness, job loss, abuse, oppression, poverty, divorce, illness. But in gospel hope, we are supported by the good news that God's restoration is tenaciously breaking in. But yet we live in the in-between, in the overlap. And so there is... There's a strength and a weakness in both focusing on the already of God's kingdom coming. And there's a strength and the weakness of focusing on the not yet. And the strength of focusing on the already parts is that you access the spiritual dynamite, the electricity that Jesus makes possible to know you're loved and forgiven by God because of the work of Christ, to live with the authority and power that Jesus has given. Do you know that? What did he say in Matthew? All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, and he gives them to to us, that we would live without authority and power in the world. To be baptized in Holy Spirit and fire. Hello. That's what John says. I baptize you with water. There's one coming after me that's going to baptize you in Holy Spirit and fire. And if you don't know that those things are already true, you won't live with that electricity like the early church was full of. But, But see... Even though there's a strength there, I want you to see that when we pray your kingdom come, the prayer focuses on the not yet. The prayer is focusing us on the places where all of those things are not yet a reality. And that is significant because it's pointing us towards all of the places where the kingdom is still to come. And it invites us into the ache, the ache of that reality that forces action. So we talk about making the invisible kingdom visible. It's our mission statement. If you're not, it may be on, is it on the back of the worship folder, Joe? Yes, our mission on the very back of your worship folder to make Jesus's invisible kingdom visible in Winter Haven, Polk County, and the world. So obviously this means a lot to us. It's our mission statement. Let me offer an application about how it is that that, that happens then. What, what is the mission this prayer calls you to? In the Bible, we are called uh, God's images. We are made in the image of God. And in the ancient world, and I've said this often, but it bears repeating In the ancient world, only kings and emperors and queens were called the image of God. People people believed that these rulers lived, lived somewhere between heaven and earth. They lived in this middle plane, 
And they weren't quite gods, but they definitely weren't just normal people. And it was their job because of their power and their influence and their position to learn the will of the gods in heaven and then to use whatever spiritual power and resources and wealth and so forth they had to see whatever the gods willed in heaven done on the earth. That was the job. That was the job description of the images of God. And then Moses comes along and says some pretty amazing things. He says, it's not just kings and queens and emperors and such that are made in God's image. Even the lowly slaves that came out of Egypt, even you and me, we're all made in God's image. Every one of us, no matter how young or how old you are, or whether you're male or female, every single person in this room is made in the image of God, which means for every single person in this room, it is our job to learn the will of God and then use whatever strength, whatever gifts, whatever influence, whatever resources we have to see his will done on the earth as it is in heaven in concrete ways so that the invisible kingdom becomes visible. And you can do that as a pastor. You can do that as a missionary. You can do it as a banker or teacher or stay-at-home mom or student. But it is the work that undergirds whatever work you're doing. And that's how the kingdom comes. But lastly, let me say one more thing before we come to the Lord's table this morning. So that's what the kingdom is, and that's how it comes. But The last thing we have to do before we leave this text is also ask, well, who is it who is responsible for bringing God's kingdom? And I'll give you a hint. I have really good news for you this morning. Who is bringing God's kingdom? Not you. Not whatever political party you affiliate with. Not whoever has the majority of seats in the House and the Senate. Jesus teaches us to pray your kingdom come we pray because we do not bring the kingdom God does that's why we pray he says pray you pray because you realize oh wait it's only his action that can make these things happen kingdom doesn't describe our action it describes what God is doing in the world so get let here we do not build the kingdom we do not extend the kingdom This is important. We do not legislate the kingdom. We do not grow the kingdom. The kingdom grows, but we don't grow it. You won't find that language in the Bible. Here's the language you will find. We enter the kingdom. We seek the kingdom. We receive the kingdom. We pray the kingdom come. Because the kingdom is a gift, not a work. The gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. So Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Church has gotten into a lot of trouble by getting this wrong in the past, so let's get it right. And here's what I would say to you this morning. Here's my application as we talk about these big kingdom things. Stop taking yourself so seriously. Be careful of taking yourself so seriously. You don't have to do great things for God. Just be faithful. And here's what I mean. Listen, seriously, just be faithful. Get up, read your Bible, say a prayer, kiss your spouse, hug your kids, get busy with whatever work God has given you to do. Do it with character and soul as to the Lord and not man. Love people well. Fill your day with small acts of kindness. Give it your all. Then come home, mow the lawn, clean the house, play with the kids, enjoy a meal and laugh and sing together. And when it's time to go to bed, say a prayer. And say, thank you, God, for all of it. And then get up the next day and do it again. And here's the prayer, though. And then at the end of the day, say a prayer. And here's the prayer you pray at the end of the day. Something like this. Lord, all I have, 
all I've done today, whatever small thing it is, it's nothing more than like that boy in the story in your gospels. It's nothing more than a few fish and some leftover stale bread. It's not much, but it's yours. And so if you would take it and if you would multiply it and if you would add your grace and power to this little effort I've given you, let nothing be wasted. That's how the kingdom comes. You see You don't have to be a world changer. World changer, however that old song goes, right? You don't, you, don't have, you don't have to be that. Just be faithful. If there's a kingdom, then there's a king. And it's not you. It's his job to see the kingdom come. So don't forget, the gospel is an announcement. It's not a recruiting pitch. You remember the old poster of Uncle Sam? I want you for the U.S. Army. There it is. Look. Do you remember that? I want you for the U.S. Army. If you leave with that image in your head, you've misunderstood me. The gospel is an announcement of a battle already won, of an enemy already defeated, of a champion already victorious. And it's not our work that brings the kingdom. That's why we pray. We pray your kingdom come. We pray because we acknowledge that it is something that God's power and love must accomplish. So N.T. Wright, he notes that the prayer has already been answered. Listen to this. This is so great. And then I'm done. He says, Jesus' first followers, to their own great surprise, quickly came to believe that God's kingdom had come. That his will had been done in Palestine, in Jerusalem, on Calvary, and in Easter, heaven and earth had finally dovetailed together. Jesus' first followers didn't think for a moment that the kingdom meant simply some new religious advice, an improved spirituality, or a better code of morals, or a freshly crafted theology. They held to a stronger, more dangerous claim. They believed that in the unique life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the whole cosmos had turned the corner from darkness to light. He goes on to say, he said, what Jesus did, he did uniquely, once and for all, and that's an essential part of the gospel. We don't have to go on repeating it again and again, and we couldn't even if we wanted to, and if we tried. He said this, he said, think of it this way. He said, Jesus is the medical genius who discovered penicillin, and we are the doctors ourselves being cured by the medicine, now applying it to all those who need it. He said, Jesus is the musical genius who captivated his, uh, excuse me, the musical genius who wrote the greatest oratorio of all time, and we are the musicians captivated by his composition ourselves who now perform it before a world of cacophony. But these are his words. He says, the kingdom did indeed come with Jesus, but it will not fully come, but it will, excuse me, the kingdom did indeed come with Jesus but it will fully come when the world is healed, when the whole creation finally joins the song. But it must be Jesus' medicine, and it must be Jesus' music. And the only way to be sure of that is to pray this prayer. And so we do. Uh, William Gatsby, who is with John Newton, put together the Gatsby Hymnal, he... he uh, offered this, uh, this prayer, this doxology, and I would just make it our prayer this morning. This is the prayer. Great God, thy kingdom come with reverence we would pray. May the eternal three in one his sovereign scepter sway. May grace triumphant reign and Christ exalted be. Sinners deserving endless pain, thy great salvation see. May mercy, truth, and peace fill each believer's soul. And may 
the sweet kingdom of thy grace their raging lusts control. May love and harmony among thy saints abide. Thy presence set each bosom free from enmity and pride. Go on, I love that. Go on, go on, thou mighty God, thy wonders to make known till every sinner bought with blood shall trust in thee alone. May his kingdom come. May his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Would you pray that with me? And so, Father, we do offer that prayer to you. In whatever way, whatever way that becomes significant or unique to us as individual people, all living uh, lives that are very different from one another, but towards the same goal, we would say to you, take whatever meager offering, we, as we look and we think about our parenting, or as we look and we think about all the years of work that we've done, we might think, oh, have I accomplished anything? Has it been for anything? But to acknowledge you, to you and say, Lord, uh, take this few fish and loaves and take it into your hand because with you, it can be multiplied and made significant, so much so that you can feed the whole world with lots left over. So would you do just that? We are your faithful subjects. Forgive us for pridefully thinking that it is our power and our kingdom that the world needs rather than yours. Recenter our hearts once again on the promise of your kingdom come. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So here's the thing. A people willing to make that confession is a powerful force in the world who do not live in their own strength, but who reach out to him for his strength and in humility say that, go through their life saying, Lord, I need you. Do this for me today. Don't listen to the cable news. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Don't believe the doomsday prophets about all the things that are terrible in the world. The kingdom of God is on the march. Aslan, Aslan is on the move. Right? And don't believe the discouragements in your own heart and the disappointments that you might feel and you look back and you think, oh, I did it so wrong or oh, did it it matter at all? Don't believe it. Don't listen to it. Because the Lord is taking our little fishes and loaves and bringing them into his hands and doing something amazing with it. And so go in in the confidence that Aslan is indeed on the move. He calls you to join him, to come to the the place there in Narnia, wherever they gathered, right? To make war against his enemies. But he promises as he sends you that you will not go alone. That's what this benediction means. In Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and I'll be with you. And so may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you, give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.